the Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to a fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. It's great to have you with us today. This program is brought to you in part by Wendy Bloom, Patricia Smith, Andrew Krieger, and Sherry Willoughby. They are voluntary subscribers to the Peter B. Collins Show. We give the show away free. Anybody can get it at iTunes. But if you're able to and inclined to support it, I welcome it. You can click the link at PeterBCollins.com, the one that says you can help. We're also sponsored in part by the Organic Wine Company. And in honor of Bastille Day, they have a very special offer. Click through the links on my homepage at PeterBCollins.com and find out more about our Organic Wine Club, too. Later in this podcast, your humble host has comments for you on the court decision tossing out the ban on fleeting obscenities. You know, when Bono said, fucking brilliant. And Janet Jackson's nipple was briefly exposed at the Super Bowl. Well, we'll wait to see what the Supreme Court does on review, but it's a positive step for free speech, in my opinion. And in his Wall Street Journal column, Karl Rove has admitted his biggest mistake in the White House. And I can't help. We're going to pile on to that one. Our intro music today comes from R.E.M. And it's called the New Orleans Instrumental Number 1. And as the Gulf Coast heaves a collective sigh of relief, in the last few days, BP announced that they have stopped the blowout. At least temporarily, they're still drilling those two relief wells, but they have capped the blowout there at the Deepwater Horizons site, uh, one mile below the surface of the ocean. And uh, this, of course, is, is just uh, a, a bit of relief because the cleanup will continue. We have no guarantee that uh, another blowout won't occur. There appears to be huge amounts of pressure uh, bubbling up from that drilling site. And, of course, the uh, uh, people in the Gulf, like Mary Landro, want to keep on drilling. And the courts, despite uh, justices or judges uh, in this case who should have recused themselves because of their investments in oil stocks and the connections to the oil industry, uh, those uh, efforts uh, to block the moratorium continue. And, of course, the uh, Obama administration is still in a confused mode because they're the ones who lifted the ban, talked about lifting it, on future offshore drilling back in March. 
certainly not expecting the blowout and uh, the uh, uh, blowback that have occurred. Hank Alberelli returns to our program today, H.P. Alberelli Jr. We met him over the last year because of his powerful book, A Terrible Mistake, subtitled The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments. Hank Alberelli, welcome back to our program today. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. It's, it's really great to be back uh, speaking with you. Well, I enjoy talking with you, and I continue to recommend your book to people, and you've been kind enough to send a couple of boxes of books to me. And so today I just want to share that wealth a little bit. And the first three people who send in an email with uh, Alberelli in the subject line, will, uh, and include your mailing address, will receive a free signed copy of Hank Alberelli's book called A Terrible Mistake. And we're going to refer to that. There are two topics we're going to talk about. They are linked with Hank Alberelli today. Uh, but the idea of diseases as weapons, which uh, is what his book is about, um, and drugs being used as weapons, of course, uh, as we discussed in two very important podcasts over the past year, um, will we'll crop up here in a moment. So if you'd like a free copy of this powerful book, A Terrible Mistake, sit down at your email right now and send a note to peter at peterbcollins.com. Al Borelli in the subject line, your mailing address in the uh, body of it, and the first three people I will uh, acknowledge and send you a book uh, within a week or two. So, Hank, uh, I pulled out my Rand McNally World Atlas and put it in front of me here and was able to pinpoint where you live, which is, uh, and, and we're not inviting people to drop by for drinks <laughs> or a barbecue, uh, but you live on Indian Rocks Beach, which is along a barrier island uh, west of St. Petersburg on the mm -hmm. Gulf Coast of Florida. So you have a very interesting perspective on the, particularly the long-term risks of both the oil spill itself and the dispersants that the BP has used, and we'll, we'll get into that discussion in a few minutes. But uh, tell me what life is like along the west coast of Florida this summer. Uh, has there been a huge drop-off in tourism, and have you personally picked up any tar balls on the beach? Well, actually, uh, I'll answer the the last question first, uh, there, there are absolutely no tar balls uh, in this area at all, uh, and there hasn't been any oil uh, at all. And part of the reason for that uh, is, again, as you said, as you told listeners, I live in a, a very small town. It's actually a barrier island called Indian Rocks Beach, which is about a, a two miles south of Clearwater. Uh, and because of the configuration of, of the Gulf side of the peninsula and uh, the way the currents move, uh, we've been extremely fortunate here and, and haven't picked up any adverse effects at all uh, from the oil spill. Not even, I mean, they test the, they're very vigilant here in terms of air testing, air quality testing uh, since the spill occurred, and there hasn't been, uh, there hasn't been any changes. Uh, whatsoever, mm -hmm. unless unless they're you know terribly lying to us, and and I guess that's possible. But hopefully somebody's double checking what people are doing. But but no, there's been no effect here whatsoever. The the strange thing uh, that occurred primarily about a, about a month after the leak began, and everybody realized uh, you know within a couple of weeks people people realized well this isn't going to be fixed in a day or two, which which was thinking, 
here and I think in Washington and in the rest of the country. But the the thing that really struck me is is the rumors uh, that I started receiving uh, that people believed to be true almost within I don't know, two two or three weeks. Uh, the most the most dominant one being that that I was going to be forced out of my home uh, by FEMA uh, and and relocated uh, in the fashion of the Japanese during the Second World War, relocated in in a in a former army base somewhere in Georgia or North Carolina. Oh come on! Wouldn't they give and, you a, a toxic mobile home somewhere? <laughs> yeah, I, I, why I. You know, I was surprised. Why can't I stay in Florida? It's uh, <laughs> my chosen state. But, but uh, you know, and at first I thought it was a bit of a joke, and then you know, it's it's so easy and, and fast to do your your own research now. I I googled it and found out that uh, there were numerous, uh, you know, so many you can count them all. Uh, supposed factual reports on the internet. Uh, about FEMA locations, mandatory evacuations and locations uh, occurring all up and down the Florida coast. But to make a long story short, the, that has not happened in this town, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I don't expect it will. And, and, it, and to my knowledge, it hasn't happened anywhere. The We, we do experience a, a fair amount of uh, hurricanes in sure. this area, mm-hmm. uh, more more warnings or false alarms than actual hurricanes, but they're usually maybe one or two hurricanes a year. And and we do, that was new to me. When I moved here about 12, 15 years, it's actually 15 years ago, the second year we had a mandatory evacuation of the town. Uh, and mandatory evacuation primarily means that the police drive around with loudspeakers on their on their patrol cars, telling people uh, that if they're smart, they'd get out. But um, I thought it was really amusing. About maybe, maybe close to a half the town did leave, and the other half uh, used the mandatory evacuation as a big excuse just to have a, a, a large beach party <laughs> until the storm got really bad. And then, of course, the bars stayed open all night because the the drawbridges coming into this town were raised uh, primarily to uh, prevent looting uh, if the hurricane really does hit, which mm-hmm. it didn't hit in that case. And so the bars stayed open all night, and, and people, I guess, partied all night. Uh, I wasn't among that group, but mm-hmm. but uh, those are, that's the only thing that's come close to forced evacuations that they're mandatory evacuations that I'm familiar with, and and. Uh, Quite honestly, the police, you know, they'll tell you, you know, you're taking you're taking responsibility upon yourself if you don't leave. And it could be under certain conditions, such as the storm that hit uh, uh, Louisiana, New Orleans. Uh, you know, prudent people would leave if if they knew a storm of that magnitude was coming. Mm-hmm. I live about 150 yards from the beach uh, in a house that sits so oh, about. 17 feet off the ground. It's on pylons. So so it would be, you know, if I thought a storm of that magnitude was coming, I would leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because of the way this town is situated, you've got a fair amount of time to make your own judgments about the storms that are coming. But in terms of the BP leak, 
getting back to that, I was just amazed at the at the rumors that were going around about that that uh, that because of the pressure that was building in the the well beneath beneath the ground, the the, the well is actually I think two or three miles deep, right? Uh, I, I believe, yeah. I think it goes. It, it's a mile from the surface to right. the bottom, right. and then and I believe two more miles. Yeah, the well is two to three miles below that. Right, and mm-hmm. and that's just an incredible distance. Uh, you know, to think that they could actually dig that deep. But uh, there were a lot of rumors at the same time as, as the ones about mandatory evacuations going around that. Uh, that some kind of apocalyptic event was going to occur because of the pressure that was building and it was going to create a tidal wave uh, of 30 to 40 feet in height and that wave was going to hit this coast and of course wipe, you know, a wave of that size hitting this coast would would wipe everything out between Mm -hmm. the actual coast and the intercoastal. You could almost throw a rock from the beach across to the intercoastal in this town if you had a good arm. And so, uh, Hank, based on some of these rumors and uh, past history, you wrote an interesting piece published at truthout.org on the 12th of July. And, and let me read part of it. You open up with a fantasy sequence, uh, what might be called a future retrospective. Three days ago, the governor activated National Guard troops to assist federal forces, and yesterday, tanks started rumbling over pontoon bridges into the town. I don't think we can hold out much longer. There's no way we can ward off the firepower assembled against us. FEMA has officially declared that we are enemy combatants and terrorists, illegally resisting the orders of the U.S. Congress and federal government. Helicopters circle our town day and night, shining powerful spotlights into windows and backyards after dark. Media people and reporters have been banned from trying to enter our town, and after a few journalists began calling stay-behind townspeople for information, all the phone and cable lines were cut. Satellite signals were jammed the same day. Yesterday, a band of thugs cranked up on meth, rolled into town on motorcycles, thinking the area was ripe for looting. But they quickly found otherwise. By the time the smoke cleared, all... (laughs) Sorry, this is amusing. All 18 of the marauders lay dead on the main boulevard. Word from the mainland is that FEMA has contracted with Blackwater to send in a crack team of former Iraq and Afghan mercenaries to disarm us and charge us with murder. At the same time, construction trailers bearing the name Halliburton were lining up just beyond the bridges. Rumors are everywhere that the beach towns will be redeveloped completely condoized by a firm controlled by Dick Cheney, George Bush the Elder, and Bill Clinton. (laughs) Now, it's amusing, and I enjoyed the, the way you wrote it, but there are threads here that are alive and well in the minds of many Americans, and some of this, unfortunately, is fostered by the behavior of our government. Right, exactly right, Peter. I mean, I, I wrote it uh, very tongue-in-cheek, but uh, and it runs for maybe two or three paragraphs until I get to the, the serious side of it. But as I wrote it, I realized that, that everything... I was writing was either based on a, a very real fear and possible fear that uh, that a lot of us experience, uh, and that everything I was using example-wise uh, uh, could easily happen uh, in other situations. Uh, I don't put it past uh, FEMA to relocate people, and, and in writing that I, satirically, I, I wasn't I wasn't mocking that possibility. I could see it easily happening had the uh, had the leak and the situation, you know, environmentally created by the leak uh, had it gotten worse. Uh, 
uh, yeah, there could have been forced evacuations uh, and relocations to FEMA camps, and that's very real. Uh, and if you go onto the internet, um, you'll you'll find very uh, quote unquote factual sites that that give all kinds of uh, details concerning these FEMA camps, including where specifically where they're located and how many trailers are already placed there. I haven't visited any of these sites. I don't know if they actually exist or if these are just fantasies in people's minds. But, but no, it, it, you know, it was, it was written uh, tongue-in-cheek, but, but it, was based, it was based on hard reality. Well, and from that opening, uh, let me jump ahead, because here in uh, uh, one paragraph, I think you nailed the situation pretty well. First and foremost is that the disaster represents a dismal failure of leadership in America. One can't help but see the paralysis, fear, and frustration on the faces of Obama's expert advisors and elite czars. Carol Browner has become a ghost of her former self, already haunted by her looming legacy as the environmentalist who failed to prevent a national disaster. Ken Salazar can't seem to lose his silly trademark cowboy hat, but nobody mistakes him for not being the Cadillac cowhand he really is. Janet Napolitano can't seem to get much of anything right, but have no fear, America, she's working on it. And hey, everybody makes mistakes now and then, don't they? Vice President Joe Biden couldn't even get his feigned passions in the right order for his one visit and prepackaged speech to the Gulf, before he flew off for a weekend round of golf and then on to another disaster, Iraq. Press aides privately said that the fouled air near the spill was bad for the VP's hair implants. Then there's the president himself, who can't seem to hit his stride, his right stride, with anything he does or says about the BP disaster. His Oval Office talk to the country was forgettable before it was even over, leaving many listeners secretly wishing he had used parts of Jimmy Carter's famous Malaise speech. Well, we called it mayonnaise at the time. Um, but, but you know, while some of this is a little uh, cheeky, Hank, um, it, it's, it's all accurate. And let's start with Obama. I mean, the most powerful moment he really offered was when one of his daughters said, Daddy, have you plugged the leak yet? Uh, but he, and, and to be fair, and I, I think most people have acknowledged this, the President of the United States can't put on an Aquaman suit and just go fix it himself. But there has been the uh, perception of a White House that really seemed lost and couldn't quite figure out whether to tell BP what to do or to sit back and let BP do its thing so we could blame them later. Well, I, I agree 100%. And, and of all people... Uh, uh, I'm horribly disappointed in, in Barack Obama in terms of his reaction to the to the BP disaster, uh, and and a lot of other things, uh, the war, torture, and everything else. And and I just don't understand it. And I want to I want to be absolutely clear. I voted for Obama, and I was one of I guess the the many who who thought who actually believed that he was going to carry some some hope and change. Uh, into Washington D.C. in the country, um, and and I feel I feel like I was hoodwinked now, uh, and that it was just a, sort of a showman's line that that we all ended up uh, swallowing. But I don't know. It, I really do believe this. This administration has responded to the the, the Gulf disaster, the BP disaster, in, in 
a way that can't, I don't think you can uh, not mistake for paralysis. I, you know, I try to watch TV once in a while, and I intentionally will watch the, the Fox News station to, to get sort of the other side. Uh, and I've, I saw Carol Browner a few times early on, and she's someone I have great respect for and, and, and actually believe that, uh, that she has a real dedication and passion for, for a clean environment. And yet what I was seeing was a woman that looked like a, you know, like she was the, the, the wife of some, somebody that comes home drunk every night and beats her. I mean, she was just sitting there, you know, dark-eyed and cowering and really had nothing to say. And, and when she was with Biden or the president, she, looked, she actually looked embarrassed to be there. Um, and that didn't, that didn't instill a lot of confidence in me. And with Obama, I don't know what to say. Uh, lately, I've been thinking that maybe Obama's, you know, maybe early on when Obama was running for president, the big, the big complaint about him from the Republicans was that he didn't have the experience. He just simply didn't have any level of experience for the job. And I discounted that because I thought my reaction was, well, maybe that's good. Maybe he'll, you know, mm-hmm. maybe he'll invent his own level of experience, and because he's certainly intelligent enough, and I thought that could just make up for the lack of experience. And of course, you can bring in the very best people available to fill in the gaps where you don't have the experience. But I, I think the syndrome he suffers from now is, is I, you know, he was a college professor for a while, and and in terms of non-realistic environments, you can't get much more non-realistic or, or displaced from reality than a university or Ivy League campus mm-hmm. uh, somewhere. And, and you know, he was a professor, and you know how professors are regarded by students. They, you know, people look on you with awe, and they think you know everything, and of course you control their grades. And, and uh, so you're, you know, like a minor god figure on the campus. And and sometimes I think Obama entered the presidency with that sort of uh, aura about him and, and belief that that you know he could carry he could carry that same reaction in people uh, into the White House. But that's not reality. There's a lot of people in this country who simply aren't impressed by the fact uh, that he's president. Uh, and 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 for for some good reasons and for some very bad reasons. Yeah, it, it, it is remarkable. There's this huge divide, and in the recent numbers about the poll numbers about Obama's performance, uh, uh, which uh, you know is declining in public support, his personal popularity is is still uh, pretty decent. It's it's in the fifty percent range. Mm-hmm. But you know the real aspect of leadership here, Hank, that I think cuts across not just the the BP mess. Uh, but many other failings of this administration now 18 months in is uh, a failure to clean house and bad appointments. That, that yeah, the, yeah, the, the recycled Clinton people that he brought in uh, uh, have not impressed me. The holdover, particularly Gates uh, in defense uh, from the Bush era mm-hmm. and Bernanke and uh, Geithner uh, in the uh, on the economic team, uh, I consider them Republican holdovers. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so, you know, we have U.S. attorneys uh, who were part of Karl Rove's uh, politicization of mm-hmm. that that whole operation, who are still in office. And I'm I'm thinking of Laura Canary in uh, Alabama and the the Siegelman case, which uh, we continue to cover on on this program. Right. And, and so across the board, 
Um, one of, I believe, the Obama administration, and, and we have to lay the blame on the president's desk ultimately, uh, has been uh, a failure to get rid of the Republicans embedded in various departments from minerals management, uh, you know, as I said, right up to Gates, and uh, also bad choices uh, from the, the Clinton uh, uh, retinue, uh, of of people who really have not performed that well. Now, I want to be clear that Ken Salazar is not a, a Clinton protege. He's just a mistake <laughs> of a singular order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a failure of leadership. And, and, I mean, Obama picked those people. Obama, you know, it's the president that signs off on those people. I worked in the White House towards the end of the 70s under under Jimmy Carter for a few years and actually worked in the presidential personnel office. So I, I know how much influence and power the president has in terms of signing off uh, on appointees, especially high-level appointees, uh, secretaries of, of agencies. Uh, you know, the president gets who he wants in those jobs. And, mm-hmm. and if you're not smart enough to pick who you want, uh, then you're simply not smart uh, because those are the people that are going to carry your programs and policies forward. Uh, and and you mentioned a good example, Geithner. You know, Geithner, I, th- I thought right from the start was a horrible mistake, just in terms of his appearance. He he looks like he looks like the guy that maybe swallowed a million dollars uh, and and has this permanent uh, look of sheepishness on his on his face <laughs> uh, over it. He always appears to be embarrassed wherever he is, and he should be uh, because you know he was there for. For the uh, final, the final Bush years and months, where where they literally backed the moving vans up to the the Federal Reserve and all the banks and looted all that they could mm-hmm. before before uh, Bush left office, and and I I thought Obama and I'm sure Obama was well aware of that, and I thought, well, you know, that's going to change that. And then my other big bone to pick is the whole, you know, Guantanamo and torture. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, yeah, he will put an end to that. And it's, and I thought his goal, his objective of closing uh, Guantanamo by, you know, the, his first January in office was more than realistic. And when that passed, uh, I didn't know what to think. Uh, I, I do know what to think now. I, I've just simply come to the conclusion that Gates and and a, you know a few other people in power in Washington have convinced him that, that they can handle the situation and he should just keep his nose out of it. And maybe there's a little fear on his part. Maybe maybe he doesn't want to take on both the CIA and the military uh, you know, at the same time. And and there's you know, if you look historically you don't have to look too deeply to mm-hmm. to, to recognize where that fear is rooted. And, yeah. And uh, but I don't think he would have paid you know, a large human price by by closing closing Guantanamo. Uh, I really, I think, you know, he would have won a lot more respect, and he wouldn't be losing his base as quickly as he's losing it now if he'd met some of those. Well, you know, Hank, uh, I've more be- specific goals. I've become allergic to the um, the, the high profile presidential first day. If you recall, Bill Clinton uh, made the announcement that uh, gays could serve openly in the military and had to backtrack within 72 hours. Uh, Sam Nunn and other members of his own party 
were instrumental in uh, forcing the president to stand down on that. And likewise, it, it appears Obama uh, didn't properly vet his decision and, and run it past leaders of his own party. And, and I'm not saying he should have taken a different step, but by making it this high-profile uh, day-two event of his presidency, he, he took a risk there that uh, has really smacked him in the face. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think the lesson for future presidents is on day two, uh, don't do anything. Right. <laughs> just, right. just uh, you know, get used to the new office and uh, thank some supporters. But th- this idea that we have to have a dramatic uh, first move is, is often quite problematic. That said, uh, the most recent podcast just before this one, Hank, uh, features Andy Worthington, who mm-hmm. is the British journalist who mm-hmm. is the world's leading expert on our mess at Guantanamo. Right. And just one thing that I want to mention, because uh, people may have already listened to that or can go back and listen to it when they find the time. 93% of the 779 people who have been or still are held at Guantanamo were innocent. 90, 93%. And, and Dick Cheney and his little daughter are still going around saying, worst of the worst, you know, mm-hmm. we can't allow these people to touch American soil, or come into our courtrooms, or be incarcerated, you know, inside the United States. And the fiction of Guantanamo as a place outside the reach of the U.S. courts has been shattered. So what the hell are they talking about? Well, good question. And, and you know, that, 90, that 98 or 99% that's innocent, uh, the Bush administration knew that within days of, of sending those people to Guantanamo. And, mm-hmm. and the Obama administration has known that for months and knew that well before they took office. And the fact that they couldn't gather the wherewithal to, to release a substantial number of those people, just simply release them. It wasn't necessary to, to move them to you know, black sites uh, around the, the, the world or, or the prisons here in the United States. Just let them go because they weren't guilty of anything. But the fact that they couldn't gather the wherewithal to do that is just mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. I, just, I don't get it. And, and I've come to the conclusion that, that they simply don't want to do it, that it's, you know, it's just not high on their priority list. But, I, you know, I don't understand their priority list anymore. I think, you know, the, the country did need health care revamping, serious health care revamping. And for me, it was real simple. I, I've always said and told anybody that asked me about it, I want the same health care that Congress has. It's mm-hmm. real simple. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be real expensive. I just want the same level of health care they have. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. I'm the person, along with everybody else, that puts them there. Why can't I have that? Now, Now I have revamped health care in the form of whatever whatever the Obama administration pushed through. I don't even know what it is. Nobody's explained it to me. I took a, 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 some time a couple days or a month or so ago trying to figure out what you know what I get uh, for health care because my health care is my coverage is lousy because, well, Hank, because I'm a writer and, <laughs> and you know I don't work for a huge corporation but I don't well, let know me what let it me is. let me just tip you off. It's almost nothing until 2014. Well, that's what it, it is nothing until 2014. No, no, there's then, some it, there's some marginal changes uh, <laughs> about high risk pools uh, and also pre existing conditions and right. some coverage of young people. 
but for the most part, nothing really changes till 2014. Uh, some taxes will be collected in the meantime, but the benefits, uh, uh, such as they are, really don't start to flow until later. And and this directs me to another comment that I wanted to offer, and, and that is uh, just this week, in the last 24 hours, as you and I are speaking, Hank, uh, the Democrats are declaring victory in their financial form, uh, reform legislation. Right. Right. And this is another case of, uh, at best, a C-plus piece of legislation being touted as A++. And, and maybe we should get Moody's or one of the rating agencies <laughs> that, that uh, sold us all the bullshit and the, the derivatives to rate some of this legislation. But, you know, idea. the Democrats, ha- you know, they, they've been up against a very obstructive Republican minority, and I, I grant them that. Uh, but they've fumbled the ball many times in their own party and can't really build consensus among Democrats. And uh, they have produced a lot of really watered down, uh, heavily diluted legislation that approaches the problems but doesn't solve them. And yet the press machinery of the Democratic leadership is, oh, another big victory for the president. Uh, you know, we scored big with this financial reform legislation. Well, sorry, that's that's not the way I see it. No, you're, you're exactly the right. Right. I don't think anybody really sees it that way. It's a, it's a big victory in their eyes and in their minds, the small min- uh, minority on Capitol Hill, the Democrats. I mean, it's a huge victory for them, but they're not fooling they're not fooling anybody else. Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid might think it's great, but uh, for the most part, most people in America aren't even paying attention now because they're so overwhelmed with the with the economic situation. You you suggested a few minutes ago that the best thing Obama could have done after taking office is you know just maybe breathe easy for a few weeks. Uh, and the other, and and I think that's exactly right. Uh, and look around and and figure out which way the wind is blowing take some serious polls, but at the same time, I, I think the thing you didn't do is solidify your relationship with Congress yeah. and and figure out you know exactly what you want Congress to put through and, and put them on notice. That well, and in particular, bottom line. And, and Hank, this comes back to the leadership issue. I have argued that in the first month of his presidency, Barack Obama needed to identify the conservative Democrats who would cause him problems, uh, including Joe Lieberman, uh, Blanche Lincoln, Mary Landro, the Nelson brothers, and uh, and a couple of others. They're not really brothers, I know that. Uh, but, you know, he should have brought them in and knocked their heads together and said, look, I got elected, and I need you on some specific pieces of legislation, like this health care bill. And uh, you can vote any way you want on any other piece of legislation. But, Blanche, when I call and say I need you for a cloture vote on the health care bill, you damn well better be there or else. And oh, Obama, I Obama or, or doesn't I'm going to uh, the expression he used during the, the golf situation or I'm going to kick some ass and kick some serious ass. Yeah. I mean, he's got he's got one of the best ass kickers there is, Rahm Emanuel. And, and the rumors now coming out of D.C., People I talk to is are saying that Emmanuel's so dissatisfied with the fact that the administration can't get it together and, and be tough enough that he wants out now. I don't know what Obama's going to do without him. He hasn't done much with him, but but I, I'm not sure who would come in and take his place. It's in a lot of ways it is reminiscent of the Carter administration uh, in terms of some of the mistakes and the failings they're making. Uh, 
Well, and, and on, on Emmanuel, I'm sorry, he's mostly kicked ass on the left and, right, right. and told him to sit down and shut up, and most of them have. And yeah. so we have an anti-war movement that was uh, really building under Bush, and it's, you know, sleepwalking under Obama. Yeah, where is the anti-war movement? It's, it's you know, it's, uh, the, that I see down here, it's mostly among, among women. Code Pink and, and the leadership there isn't super great in this area, but... But uh, I don't know. I grew up during the 60s and 70s, so I saw the effectiveness of, of actual protest, you know, led by Martin Luther King, some real mm-hmm. leaders mm-hmm. Uh, back then. And, I, and I've, I saw what that can actually do and achieve. I, I know that times have changed and that maybe the old, the old mechanisms and the old tactics don't fully work anymore and that there has to be uh, uh, some new techniques invented. But... I think one of the first things that has to be done is to develop uh, our side of the media. Uh, uh, you certainly do a great job, but but or, you know maybe you should be given more power wattage in terms of approaching the uh, reaching out to the rest of the country. But mm-hmm. the the big the big problem is Fox News. I mean, you, you, they basically you know they they control the propaganda line for the Republican Party, the ultra-right party, and they, they push, 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 push. And there's no counterforce. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and they've, and, they've taken... Do you remember in, in uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle there was that, <laughs> uh, that sub-cartoon of Boris and Natasha? Yeah, sure. And <laughs> Boris was this Russian spy, and he was only two <laughs> inches tall, but he always used a flashlight right. <laughs> uh, to magnify his image. And that's what I think of the Tea Party. Yeah. All right. It's about 50 people uh, yeah. funded by uh, tobacco and pharma and Dick Army and and, you know, a few other loose cannons in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's being magnified first by Fox News and then dutifully by the rest of the media mm-hmm. as if, you know, it represents anything significant. And it's really just a bunch of uh, belly aching obstructionists who, uh, you know, are trying to redefine the Re- Republican Party to the right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's being, you know, made out to be some, uh, you know, growing national movement. And I, I'm sorry, I don't see it that way. I and, don't see it that way. You know, people, Fox News has made a, a tremendous attempt to paint it out as a populist, you know, grassroots movement. I don't see it that way at all. I see a lot of people who who have a racist agenda and who have a very selfish agenda. People, mm-hmm. you know, people who are very comfortable drawing, you know, multiple pensions, including Social Security, on top of it. Uh, and they just, you know, they don't want that boat rocked in any way. Uh, and they don't, you know, read your, the thing that they're, they're most afraid of is re, anything that remotely re, re, resembles redistribution of wealth right. in this country. And, and there's a need for that on a certain level. And, and had the reform, you know, the so-called reform that had been done in, in the financial systems in Wall Street resembled that to some token amount, maybe they would have had a little more, uh, you know, a little more success. But, mm-hmm. but the country, the, to, one of the things that's most alarming for me is the, the disparity that's growing in terms of, you know, the rich and the poor in this country. The middle class is, is basically vanishing. I don't see how any political party, Republican, Democrats, or even a third party, uh, can do can do a damn thing without without a solid middle class, and if things keep going the way they're going now, in eight or ten years, there's not going to be a middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, it's just going to be gone. Well, and we have a uh, we have a billionaire trying to buy the governorship here in California, <laughs> and it's it's all breaking down along class lines. She's entitled, and the rest of us are just have to get ready to get whacked. It's uh, it's really bizarre. Hank, I, I want to turn now to a piece that uh, you have sent me in advance of its publication, uh, and this is about an outbreak of dengue fever in Key West, Florida. Now, that's a a good distance south from where you are. And for people who haven't been there, the Florida Keys are spectacular. Uh, You can drive south from Miami uh, across the bridge there and uh, through this this series of uh, islands and uh, connected by causeways. And uh, it's it's just a beautiful um, natural uh, area. But tell us a little bit about the history and how this ties into the exhaustive research you did about Fort Detrick and the development of drugs and uh, diseases for weapon purposes by our military. Sure. It's interesting. I did, because of the Olson book that I wrote and because Frank Olson worked at Fort Detrick, which is the Chemical and Biological Warfare Research uh, uh, Center for, for the United States, and if not the world, uh, because they share a lot of their technology with other Western countries. Uh, I, I gathered a tremendous amount of uh, material uh, concerning uh, experiments and research that was conducted during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a lot of it which I couldn't use in the book because it wasn't directly related to uh, Olson's work and because I, I made an attempt to, to incorporate a lot of that into the book and just couldn't go couldn't go much further without, you know, Going over 1,200 pages, the book is 800 pages now. But, but I about well, actually a few months ago, uh, I saw a report that nobody noticed uh, that in 2009, at the end of 2009, there were a couple cases of dengue fever reported in Key West, and and I I clipped both articles out and then forgot that I had them and just went back to them recently for this article that's about to be published, but. But because of those recent cases, which all blossomed among people who had visited, uh, I think the case, the first case was uh, a middle-aged woman who had visited Key West from Rochester, New York, went home and and came down uh, with the fever. And the fever is not, uh, for the most part, it's not lethal and it's not life-threatening. It's very, very uncomfortable to experience. It's like having uh, the worst case possible of the flu, and it can last week or two, uh, and the chances of anybody getting it in Key West are pretty slim, but uh, because of these initial cases, the CDC quietly went into Key West uh, about eight or nine months ago and conducted a, a, very, uh, a very thorough study and concluded that about 10% of the people, the residents of Key West, are infected with this virus. Uh, and of course, uh, you know they explain to people it's it's mosquito born, and and the way you get it is quite simple. You're you know one or two bites by a mosquito or more, and and chances are you know it's not going to manifest itself as as a full blown disease. You're not going to feel any symptoms whatsoever if if you're more than healthy. If your immune system is weak, then then yes, you're going to have a problem. But when I read these articles and, and I read this notice of the findings of the CDC where 10% of the population there is infected, uh, 
uh, it set alarm bells off in my head right away because I knew from my experience, from my research rather, that uh, that Olson's lab at Fort Detrick, the Special Operations Division, had conducted numerous tests with dengue fever and other fever, uh, other fevers, yellow fever, uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Colorado fever. In the Florida area, specifically, two or three of the tests were in Key West. Some of them were in Avon Park, which is a few hours driving time away from Key West, uh, and in a couple central Florida locations nearby here. But all all these tests, and I mean, it's it's in black and white in all these uh, declassified reports, although sections are still redacted, that, that these experiments were conducted in the 50s, 60s, and 70s using uh, the vectors, mosquitoes as vectors to carry dengue fever. In Avon Park, and I, I mentioned this briefly in the book because I thought it was so so outrageous, uh, Olson's lab in the, in the mid-50s, this was after his death, but it's the same laboratory, went into Avon Park, which is a, a nice little community, but there was uh, a public housing development that had just been built there, this mid-50s when the program first started, I think under Eisenhower, uh, and targeted that specific neighborhood, public housing, African-Americans, uh, with the release of uh, thousands of, of dengue fever-infected mosquitoes uh, to see what effect it would have. And, and the simple objective was, well, let's see how much, you know, let's measure the damage we could do here. Would this work overseas? You know, would it work in Russia? Would it work in China? Would it work in Vietnam? Or maybe, uh, or maybe in Cuba. It, or, well, they did do it in Cuba later on, uh, and, and that uh, I included in the article. They did do it in Cuba in the 80s. They deny it, but, but uh, the, the fact that uh, it was such a huge... Cuba had a huge outbreak of dengue fever. Where, where it actually killed around 160 people, and ne- nearly 100,000 people were actually infected and, and got the full-blown fever. It was, it was also used in Nicaragua, uh, and I didn't mention it in, the, in the, the article you have, but it's going to be in an expanded article that, that'll go to Truth Out uh, next week. It was used extensively uh, in Vietnam, uh, and deliberately. They... they Brought in not not that there weren't enough mosquitoes there, but they brought in mosquitoes from from Fort Detrick, airlifted them there that had been infected with uh, with dengue fever and other biological viruses, uh, and released them uh, in the NVA areas. So so what's ironic is the the CDC, you know, for most purposes did a pretty good job with their study down here, but of course. When people ask, and as the press has, because this, the findings of the study were just released on July 13th, uh, you know, where did this come from? Why now? Uh, they're saying, well, you know, it's worldwide in tropical, subtropical areas. It's a problem, and, you know, it's just sort of a fluke, and maybe it's going to go away. We need to spray better. But there's been no mention whatsoever of all the experimentation that both the Army and the CIA have sponsored both in this country and in nearby and you know Cuba and other countries Latin America Nicaragua it was it was used in Nicaragua during the uh, the mid 80s uh, 
uh, and there's been no mention what, uh, whatsoever of that. So it's it, you know it's another gift that keeps on giving uh, from Fort Detrick, and and God only knows how many how many you know quasi lethal or lethal uh, uh, viruses uh, or diseases they've they've put out there in the you know in the US environment that uh that are going to sneak up on us. Uh, and Hank then there's another angle here that brings us back uh, full circle to where we started with the BP oil blowout in the Gulf. And that is the dispersants that uh, have been used including BP's uh, I I guess uh, 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 corporate product uh, it's something mm-hmm. that they own an interest in called Corexit uh a a product that has never been tested uh, for side effects and uh, you know unintended consequences, mm-hmm. and that the symptoms that we're seeing from people like fishermen and others in the Gulf who've been exposed to the soup that includes seawater oil and dispersants, mm-hmm. um, that they are now exhibiting symptoms that are similar to dengue fever, and and you're not suggesting. I want to be clear that uh, the dispersant is somehow corrupted with a virus. But what you're, you're saying is that it makes it very difficult to dis- distinguish or differentiate uh, between those who might have been exposed to dengue fever in Key West and those who have been uh, exposed to the, uh, the soup, the toxic soup by reference that includes the dispersants. And so we're going to end up with a p- potential... Uh, uh, Gulf of Mexico syndrome mm. um, that is, you know, a, 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 a series of symptoms, and it's hard to trace where they actually came from. Well, that's exactly right, and, and you know, I'm, I guess maybe it's wishful thinking on my part. I, I, I want to think it's coincidental, but, but at the same time, I don't put it past uh, certain entities of, of, of our government to, to come up with things like this to, to veil either problem, either the problem in Key West or, or the BP problem. But the, sim- the symptoms and the effects uh, from the dispersants and from dengue fever are almost uh, exact uh, uh, copies of one another. The, the symptoms are, are the same. I'm not quite sure how a doctor would distinguish between the two, although from the dispersants, I think the uh, the symptoms are the same, but the eventual outcome can be much more disastrous and could actually lead towards uh, uh, real, real illness and, if not, death. And let me read from your on the, the exposure one has. Let me read from your article. Among the most commonly reported symptoms, this is from the dispersants, are burning eyes, skin rashes, lightheadedness, dizziness, difficulty breathing, transient numbness, shooting pains. Persistent cough, sore throats, muscle and bone aches, weakness, and severe fatigue. More troubling reports, uh, such as those mentioned from shrimpers, have included bleeding from the nose and from the rectum, as well as permanent numbness in extremities and complete loss of the sense of smell. Mm-hmm. So uh, though those are very uh, toxic uh, responses or, or very uh, strong uh, symptomatic responses to what appears to be toxic exposure. Oh, you're absolutely right. They're extremely strong, and and I've heard cases uh, firsthand down here uh, of fishermen uh, and know a couple of these fishermen who who fish in that area who have just been, and this is pretty remarkable, who have just been splashed 
uh, out on the water with 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 a, a fair amount of these disbursements, uh, but splash to the point where you know their their arm or, or their shoulders would get soaked through on their on their uh, clothing, and they get sick almost immediately. That's how strong and potent this stuff is, and I don't mean sick to the point where you. You know, you have to sit down and, and drink, a, you know, drink a glass of water and gather yourself over an hour. But I mean sick for uh, days, if not weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, this stuff is extremely potent. It, it's not, it doesn't seem to be regulated at all. I don't know where else it's been used. Why the government allowed it to be used in this situation, I don't know, because we've got thousands of people uh, who, are, who are involved in this cleanup. I mean, literally thousands of people, both on the water uh, and on the beaches uh, and and who are who come into constant daily contact uh, uh, with these chemicals and yet nobody seems to know what what the short-term or long-term effect of, of contact with these disperse disbursements is going to be uh, it's sad you know it's really sad it certainly is well Hank it's great to talk with you thanks for joining me today I really enjoyed our wide-ranging discussion and uh, appreciate the work that you're doing. And uh, sometime in the near future, people can read your article about the dengue fever outbreak at truthout.org. And let's credit, credit your co-author, Zoe Martell, Absolutely. Uh, on that story as well. Thank you very much, Peter. I, I deeply appreciate it. Bonjour, this is Veronique Raskin. I am the CEO of the Organic Wine Company. And I want to personally invite you to join the Peter B. Monthly Organic Wine Club. Call me for the details, and I do answer my phone, at one eight 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 eco wine or visit us at www.theorganicwinecompany.com. A bientôt, j'espère. Merci. And the Bastille Day special is still available for you for a limited time. So click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com to the Organic Wine Company and check it out. Well, as promised, uh, still to come in a few minutes, we're going to uh, celebrate the appeals court decision lifting the ban on fleeting expletives on radio and television in this country. And we're going to unload with some F-bombs and uh, other stuff. I have a a whole collection of uh, illegal speech on radio and television. This is mostly TV stuff. We'll share that with you briefly. But first, I was stunned... To read the headline on this Wall Street Journal op-ed attributed to Karl Rove, the headline reads, My Biggest Mistake in the White House. And to set this up, I want to pull out again the song from John Fogarty that Roger Shuler reminded me of just the other day in uh, Podcast 151 uh, called I Can't Take It No More. Because Carl Rove's biggest mistake, he says, would not was not responding to charges no that came from John Fogarty, no Al Gore, John Kerry, many leading Democrats who said Yes, those are the powerful comments there. You lied about the WMDs. You lied about the detainees all over this world. And Karl Rove's biggest regret is that when he was in the White House, that they didn't respond forcefully enough 
to what he refers to here as the first shot in an all-out assault on President George W. Bush's integrity. He opens his commentary here, Carl Rove does, seven years ago today, Senator Ted Kennedy fired the first shot in that all-out assault on W's integrity. Later that day, Senator, well, the Senate Minority Leader, Tom Daschle, told reporters Mr. Bush needed to be forthcoming about the absence of WMD in Iraq. And what's interesting here is that Rove uses this moment where he pretends to be remorseful about his biggest mistake to try to once again spread the canard that everybody believed that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And so he selectively goes through a litany of quotes. Bob Graham, the former Florida senator, December 2001, warning that Saddam's biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons programs may be back to pre-Gulf War status. Jay Rockefeller on the Senate Intelligence Committee charged that uh, the Bush administration used bad information to bolster the case for war, but in a speech that he gave on October 10, 2002, quote, Saddam's existing biological and chemical weapons capabilities pose real threats to America. And he singles out Al Gore for the same treatment. And here's the blockbuster, the Karl Rove closer, We know President Bush did not intentionally mislead the nation. Saddam Hussein was deposed and eventually hung for his crimes, which didn't have anything to do with weapons of mass destruction, at least not in the present tense. Iraq is a democracy and an ally instead of an enemy of America. Now this kind of dissembling, an outright deception, is what gets my blood boiling. He declares without any proof, we know President Bush did not intentionally mislead the nation. I'm sorry, Carl, that's pure bullshit. And you know it. The president misled this nation about many, many things. From tax cuts for the rich, to wiretapping of domestic telephone and email transmissions, to, yes, the presence of weapons of mass destruction. And at this late date, seven years later, for Karl Rove to try to reconstruct history and say that it was Democrats who lied in saying that Bush lied just shows what a twisted... a twisted... Son of a bitch, he is. (laughs) And I will mark today's podcast at iTunes as explicit because I've been a little loose with my language and it's about to get worse. Because we are going to celebrate here with a litany of speech that could produce a fine if it were broadcast on a federally licensed radio or television station. But a three-judge panel of the Second U.S. Court of Appeals in New York on orders from the Supreme Court reviewed the fines that were imposed after the Janice Jackson, I'm sorry, Janet Jackson 
nipple exposure during the Super Bowl in 2004 as a half-million-dollar fine to CBS. And I think they also overturned the Fox television fine when um, Bono of U2 said fucking brilliant when uh, he received an award. And so this is progress toward unfettered free speech in this country. I want to be clear that I'm not advocating that every television show and every radio show be allowed to use just uh, uncontrolled blue speech. I don't think it's, you know, (laughs) I don't think it's that important. And for those of you who have satellite radios, you're able to access Howard Stern and other people who talk without any restriction on their speech. And frankly, I find it boring when I hear people, you know, go out of their way to use MF and F-bombs and all kinds of language like that for shock value. So I'm not promoting shock value type speech. What I'm saying is that it's silly for our government to believe that every moment has to be so carefully controlled and that if a nipple shows or a a bad word is used, that somehow that's going to cause some young person to go astray. It's a moralistic approach that I think is uh, unacceptable in a secular nation like the United States. And it reached the point of absurdity. You may recall this because a couple of years back, ABC Television wanted to run the movie Saving Private Ryan. And they got into a real tizzy because the FCC would not give them advance approval to air the movie without a bunch of bleeps. And so some stations didn't run it, some ran it with bleeps, and some ran it without bleeping it. And it's one thing to take a movie like Beverly Hills Cop, where Eddie Murphy gratuitously used a lot of language that is considered obscene. And it's another thing to take a movie where language is being used situationally and accurately and claim that we have to sanitize that so that no grandmother or grandchild could be offended by that language. And people have a choice. Nobody forces you to watch stuff. Nobody forces you to listen to stuff. And I think that if we're going to set a standard, it has to be fluid enough to reflect how people really use speech and not so restrictive and biblical in those restrictions to say that you can never do it. The other thing that occurred is that they changed the regulations through an act of Congress so that the individual talent who blurts something out can be personally held liable. And this is a big problem for radio DJs in particular who are encouraged by their management to be edgy, just don't get caught. So it leads to all kinds of silly games that people play, and 
the editing of songs to take out words or to kind of blur their their uh, audibility to prevent any kind of government action. Now, here's an example for you. This is a song that I like by the Rolling Stones called Sweet Neocon. And I'll play a couple of verses of it for you, and there's one offending word in here. And when I was doing a daily radio program broadcast on licensed FCC AM stations, we also had to go to great lengths to make sure that the offending part didn't get on the air. And one time I missed. (laughs) But I didn't get fined $350,000, fortunately. shit rhymes very well with hypocrite. And I don't think Mick Jagger should be censored for that expression. But you never heard that song on commercial FM radio in this country because the Stones didn't issue a cleaned up version. And so it lives on as a favorite of mine and now you've heard it and maybe you like it too. Uh, somebody sent me a link to a site I've never seen before called Jezebel.com. And the subhead says that it's about celebrity, sex, and fashion for women. All right, good for you. So they put together the great moments in cursing on live television, and I'm going to share it with you right now. So if you're easily offended, you probably have stopped listening by now, but you can turn off the podcast and... Rejoin us another day. It starts off with a uh, comment from Kathleen Turner on a uh, Fox television program, Good Day L.A. What kind of language can I use on TV? Can I say asshole? Oh, you just did. You're like, oh, shit. Oops, excuse me. Um, (laughs) And I fucking love you for that. I was asked to do a monologue (laughs) called Cunt. Republican strategist and CNN political contributor is always on time. (laughs) <laughs> That's on CNN. She calls him a cunt. I mean, he calls her a cunt. Okay. Um, I just have to be careful with our language, okay. but that's all right, sweetie. That's on the Today Show. <laughs> then I wouldn't have worked on my fucking personality. Or my, my, excuse me. Falcon Heaney. Falcon? Falcon? How do you say it? He said, don't open the door, you'll get bees in there. And I said, bullshit, excuse me. That's on the Fox News Channel. That looked like Saturday Night Live. What else are we going to call it? Soy juice? You can't well, do that. Soy jism. Rosette. <laughs> okay. But first. I can't quite understand that one. Get ready to bleep this fucking shit. <laughs> That's Joan Rivers. We must have, we I said get ready to bleep. We haven't got a bleep. I'll take a short break. I'll go to Bourbon Shut Street. Shut up! <laughs> you know what? Screw 
you. I'm working. I'll be right back. Why don't you get a job, buddy? You I, know what? I don't go to your job and knock the dicks out of your mouth. I, I don't know who that is, but she's on New Year's Eve coverage with Anderson Cooper on CNN. She's really out of control. The fuck are you doing? While we were live, just after 10 o'clock, I said a word that many people find offensive. I'm truly sorry. It was a mistake on my part, and I sincerely apologize. I didn't think of the pet rock, you stupid bitch. I am so There's Joan Rivers again. I'm going to put googly eyes on a rock and sell it. Stop that when you say it to yourself. You can't say that on morning TV, but you can talk about yourself. So, there you have it. Some of the great moments in fleeting expletives on broadcast television. And the FCC has been ordered to stand down on further enforcement of regulations that curb free speech in the name of prevention of obscenity. Uh, That concludes our Obscenity Lace broadcast for today. I want to thank you for joining us here on the Peter B. Collins podcast. And I always welcome your comments. So email me, Peter at PeterBCollins.com. I appreciate it. Trigger was sold at auction the other day for a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Happy trails. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling up